all the things that people say. Lest you hear your servant cursing you, your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. And this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. Lord, as your word is opened up to us this morning, might you graciously empower Pastor Adam, speak boldly and wisely from your word. Lord, as that word goes forward, might it feed your sheep. Might they be convicted of sin and unrighteousness. Might they be encouraged along the way. Might Jesus Christ be exalted. Might faith and hope rest squarely upon him. God, we love you. We thank you for these moments now in your word. Lord, might you nourish us by your word. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Seven. and then kind of consult some commentaries or some biblical theology, some essays on the book, we would find out that there are as many opinions um, as there are pages of paper published on this chapter or looking at this particular piece. That is, it's hard. Some even say, don't even try to establish a theme. There isn't one. It's a bit random, more sporadic. Others saying that the theme seems to kind of break away from what we've been discussing throughout the book. And some just kind of write all kinds of things. So, if we were to put it together, I'm not going to be able to handle each and every piece of the passage in a way that brings clarity over the, uh, to the overall of what he's dealing with here, um, every little individual piece. But he is dealing, I'm convinced, as we will look together, hopefully I can persuade, that he is dealing with a perennially difficult issue for humanity And that perennially difficult issue or observation that seems to, again, never go away, is this confusing matter of self-righteousness. This is an ongoing plight, uh, effect of the fall and the sinful corruption that remains within each and every one of us. Some at some more, uh, maybe, outward manifestations of such, some with by demeanor's sake, with it being a little bit more contained and withheld, but there is no one who is above the fray of the burden of self-righteousness. Um, it just the, 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 the drive within to perform and achieve, he is hit at different angles, and here he's dealing with it as a topic in and of itself, the righteousness that is the pursuit. Again, he's looked at the pursuit through different angles. Maybe it's wealth, maybe it's pre- uh, prestige and position, accomplishment, Um, uh, even just uh, being perceived by others as that wise one who stands out. Whatever it is, um, he's dealt with in in little particulars. Here he's dealing with it at the heart of what it actually is that causes all of these various pursuits. And that is this, again, constant challenge to correcting our view, that is, of ourselves as righteous individuals typically in comparison to a neighbor of some sort, or within the room right now, the people that are next to you, or perhaps in front or behind, so on and so forth. He tackles this issue of self-righteousness that, again, never goes away. I would encourage you on the idea of self-righteousness that it is that refrain that we've sang before, again, multiple times, I need thee every hour. Uh, Maybe we could say something more along the lines of, Lord, I need thee every second. 
So, so maybe we'd shrink down our benefit we extend that we could make it an hour. On on the topic of self-righteousness. So here he goes about to correct it by making a kind of brick-and-mortar observation. Now, he's going to begin to dialogue with us as though we are the audience making some of these charges. And then he's going to receive our charge and spin it and correct it unto us. This is what he's going to do here. Let me show you in the passage as we begin as he makes this basic observation to begin to deal with this false perception of ourselves as righteous individuals. Look at the confusing, perennial, perennially confusing matter. You can look in the Psalms and you see it handled from a different angle. But again, the observation is made by many in biblical wisdom literature, and it is made by you also um, probably at a different time or two within your life. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7 where he begins uh, to deal with the confusing matter or the confusing observation that is a challenge. Verse 15, in my vain life, uh, I have seen everything. And, and, And he makes this observation. This is kind of us making this observation as he begins to use it to promote the topic that he wants to deal with. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Okay, so therein is the platform conundrum or, or the, the confusing observation that he makes in order to address this issue of the righteous man and the evildoer. He's tackling it in this way, in other words, the wicked, and again, it's in wisdom literature elsewhere, but the wicked seem to not only get by, and maybe this is the observation, again, you could make right now, the wicked seem not only to get by, and this is what he's saying, in my vain life I've seen it. They even seem, moreover, to preserve their lives. So it's not like they just get by or or slide under the radar. I've seen the observation in time where the wicked, those doing evil, seem to gain life by their evil doing. This is vanity. This is vexing. I've observed it. And not only do they seem to be preserving their life, but they're preserving it by means of evil doing. It's not like they just somehow don't get caught, but it's the actual use of evil doing. It's the actual cunning practice that promotes their lives. I've seen it. And in contrast to that, even worse, is the perception that the righteous individual seems to lose his or her life as they seek righteousness. So they seek to do the right thing. They seek to be righteous individuals. In fact, they are righteous individuals. And they die in that righteousness. The wicked in the wrongdoer, he seems to preserve his life. How in the world does that make sense? This is the criticism. This is the conundrum that he'll use as a base platform to begin to interact with us over our idea of righteousness. His criticism to you, perhaps your shared criticism at time, maybe it isn't in such a broad observation as death and life, but it is by maybe small measures, kind of ethics in application. Someone kind of cutting corners, getting away with it, and actually getting promoted thereby. So again, you you can kind of contextualize it on this issue of the wrongdoer seeming to get away with wrongdoing and the righteous or the rule-abiding citizen seems to get, you know, crushed under doing right. He further kind of gives this evidence in verse 15 that again, they seem to die, the righteous seem to die without a proper accounting of their righteous deeds done in time. So they're doing right deeds. And and no one's taking it into account. In fact, let me suggest to you, they lose their life because of it. Here are the optics in a small summary. This is what he sees in his vain life. He makes this observation, or perhaps, as you see, we're making that observation, and he's addressing it unto us. And that is, good guys finish last. Or if we have heard sung, I've, I've cited music 
various times to you, and they're usually the wrong songs that people don't usually hear. But come on, you've heard this one. Um, Only the good die. Come on, thank you. We made it. So, this is the idea... That, 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 that's, that's true. That's brick and mortar. There you have it. That's life under the sun. The good, they're going to die young. If you want to have advancement, be cunning, be crafty, and get away and live lasciviously. That, that, that will promote your longevity in the days under the sun. Good guys, last. Ask them. Young, they die. So, it is right here at the optics level, your observation of he who does righteousness and he who does wickedness in the providence that then befalls him. It is right there. This idea, I want to uh, watch the text begin to narrow. It's the idea of what we would call good guys or what we would call righteous individuals is where the preacher wants to challenge us. Our criticism being that kind of why do bad things happen to good people? It's right there that he wants to zero in on the argument and challenge your thought of good people. Challenge your thought on righteous individuals. I've seen a righteous man die. Okay, right there. Let me, let me, let, let's deal with the topic of, uh, of what you are crediting to them. The, the righteous factor or the goodness factor. It's right there where the preacher wants to challenge our criticism of what we see in life under the sun. So he's challenging, in other words, our perceptions of righteousness. If I were to put it to you in a question form as we proceed through our passage, he's asking you who, again, let's put you into verse 15, that that is your lodged criticism. That's how the text is working. He's addressing a topic before you, and that is that you have seen, again, the good die young. And he's challenging you with this way in question form. What is the goodness that you are ascribing to them? Well, I've seen a righteous man die in his righteousness. What is the righteousness that you are ascribing to him? In order to lodge such a complaint. Notice how he immediately grabs our attention with the challenge. He puts forward an immediate solution for you if you are lodging this criticism in time that is life under the sun. Apart from God, you simply see things are are backward. The righteous seem to die by means of righteousness. Look at what he suggests to you then. Verse 16, be not overly righteous. There you have it. There's the answer then. I've seen a righteous man perish by means of his own righteousness. He lives a good and perfect life and he dies in it. Well, then I would just say to you, don't be righteous. Don't be overly concerned with righteousness then. Look at his further answer to that of the wicked, the conundrum of how the wicked live. He goes, well, I would, I would maybe curb that a little bit. Look at verse 17, the first portion. Be not overly wicked. You see how those two things correspond. His response to both concepts of these individuals that you're making this blanket statement about. In 16a, don't be overly righteous then. In 17a, don't be overly wicked either. Now, he's saying to you, as you, perhaps as you're looking upon individuals in time and you're ascribing unto a righteousness. The question is, those who are righteous and die by their righteousness, the question is, what are you calling righteousness? That's the challenge. That he's a good guy. What are you ascribing in that goodness unto him? That's the challenge. Because this is what the preacher then says in those two small statements. You're right. Your observation is sound. You're correct. You see what happens? The good guy finishing last? You see the, young, the good dying young? You're right. Righteousness in time is a waste of time and energy. 
The returns for your labors, the burden that you bear in time, the returns just aren't there. Don't be overly concerned with it. You're right. You do it, you work hard at it, you work, you work, you work, you work for perfection, 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 and for what? Well, I guess to be vexed by a number of things, I look over at my neighbor and he doesn't seem to care about them at all. You're right. So don't be either. Don't worry about too much righteousness in time. Now, before you get carried away, he also suggests to you, don't be foolish and careless with your wicked life either. Don't choose to be so careless. So here's your two answers. Here's my advice. That is not Adam's at this point, but this is the passage here. Here's my advice. Don't be too righteous and don't be just unnecessarily careless either. Just be a neutral kind of character. Just, you know, keep in the middle of the road kind of concept. Now the question is this, if if I were to say to you in the text, as he is saying in 16a and 17a, don't be overly concerned with righteousness, but don't be foolishly careless either. Your question to me at this point is, is this even a Christian sermon? (laughs) Okay, great. We're going to get there. Good. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. I'm just about to unlock the door and it's going to open. We're going to see what we're talking about here in just a minute. Your question to me is, and I can tell, is why not? Why, why would I not pursue righteousness? Because you just don't, don't. Just chill. Relax on it. But don't get carried away either. You know, just be balanced. Um, why not? Why not pursue it? Well, it gets a little uh, clear, kind of dark, all at the same time here. Uh, look at his answer um, in 16b and 17b. So you remember 16a is a statement in direct response to the man you perceive to be righteous and not really getting away with it. it, it he, he, he's living a difficult life, and, and it's very short. I've seen it. So then he tells you, don't be overly righteous. You say, why not? And he says this to you, don't make yourself too wise either. Why should you destroy yourself? Why shouldn't I pursue righteousness in time? Why not? Well, well, because you're going to die by it. Why should you destroy yourself? Do you see what he's saying? If you do, you will destroy yourself. Again, is this Christian... Pursuing righteousness equals dying. Waste of time and energy. There's no good returns. So we're really teetering here. Furthermore, his expression or or his reasoning behind not getting carried away with wickedness either, it's the same response. Look, verse 17, don't be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? There's his answer. Why should you not seek righteousness? Why should you not, on the other hand, if you abandon it, live a wanton life? Just absolutely carelessly. Why not? Because either option, option A, righteousness, option B, utter foolishness, both options will bring the same end. You're going to die by them. Both will find the same end, destruction. Now, to make it Christian, we're going to see exactly how he develops this. Because the righteousness, remember the question that he's asking you? You said, I've seen a righteous man die in his righteousness. And he is asking you, what righteousness are you ascribing to this one? When the complaint is, why do bad things happen to good people? The question is unto you, what do you call good? Because here's his response to you. Don't be that. Don't be that righteous individual. And don't be that foolish individual. Because both paths will lead to your destruction. The question in our mind, isn't it, is how does righteousness or the pursuit thereof lead to destruction in time? How is that true? Here's the key to the text, and I'm going to develop it in just a moment. Because he's going after what righteousness you're ascribing, what he's dealing with here, and I will prove in just a moment, I hope, self-willed 
righteousness for self-preserving purposes is fraught with peril and needless suffering. To be a righteous individual that is a perfect person generated by self-will for self-gaining, fulfilling purposes in time is fraught with peril and suffering. Do you see the distinction, not as we're speaking, of righteousness, of true righteousness by faith, but a self-willed, self-driven, self-generated righteousness in time for self-gaining purposes in time is fraught with peril and needless suffering. You're creating a weight that you yourself cannot bear. This is why he says, now now think just for a moment with me. You receive the second portion of his argument, right? It's quite straightforward. It's very easy. The fool dies because he lives so carelessly, right? I mean, duh, that makes sense. A, A foolish individual, a person who's utterly careless, lives a wicked lifestyle, he dies in his wickedness. Fine, that's very straightforward. Therefore, his comment to me of don't be overly wicked makes fine sense. It's this other aspect I'm wrestling with in this comment. Don't be overly righteous either. I need more information on this. What is he dealing with? Consider with me just for a moment. It is simple to deal with the fool in this text. But consider the deeper plight of the self-righteous. Connect it with what he says. It will bring your destruction. On a multitude of levels. Again, we might be thinking in terminal end here only and think to the exclusion of just life lived every day. We're thinking righteousness, terminal end. Think self-willed, self-generated righteousness in and out every single day. How profitable is that to the self-righteous? Here's where I want to begin to deal with the text, and I'm going to jump through the text so that we can see his argument, how he's weaving it in and out. Because as I said before, I can't deal with each and every piece, but I want to take the pieces that he's sewing in there and pull out the major building blocks and put them together for our sake. And that is, I'm going to handle this text in a twofold division. And that is, number one, we need to tackle, as he's describing this righteousness that he is telling you to not be overly concerned with. We need to establish this twofold te- the text in a twofold manner. Number one, the law and the gospel. We need to have in our minds a clear distinction between the two. And this text sets up for us to grasp what he's dealing with in the category of righteousness, the distinction of righteousness between the law's righteousness and the gospel's righteousness. Because he's clearly dealing with righteousness as a category. And he is telling you here and now this morning, don't be overly concerned with it. What kind of righteousness are we dealing with to make such a statement? Let me hit it first. If I could, by introduction, describe the law. Once again, uh, we have dealt with this topic before, but it's essential that, again, since it's a perennial issue, self-willed, self-generated, self-pursuing for self-attaining reasons, righteousness on our own, we must hear it again and again and again. Consider the standard of not our righteousness extended graciously to one another or our goodness and benefits that we charitably judge to one another. But he is moving you beyond that category where you're lodging the complaint, why is it that a righteous individual can die in their righteousness? He is moving the righteous category to God's standard of righteousness. And he is asking you, is that the standard that you're applying to the individual? God's standard of righteousness is this. We must recall each and every time. I have a few texts here to refresh our minds, but that is the standard of God's righteousness, first and foremost, we must remember, is not an approximate. Are you, are you well equipped to hear that? God's standard of righteousness is not an approximate. 
We saw that in the book of Hebrews. We saw it in the handling of the law and the gospel and the Ten Commandments. We must hear it again and again and again as we are hardwired for law-keeping. God's standard of righteousness is not an approximate. It's not on a bell curve. It doesn't take into account individual deeds done in time based on self-generated effort. It's not weighing good and bad. It isn't an approximate. Again, those who seek, and this is the individual here, and I will mine that out in the text, but the individual that we are kind of describing here is the one who seeks self-justification. That is, I want to be declared righteous, or I want to be a righteous individual in the sight of God by self-declaration, self-pursuit, self-attainment. And he's saying, those who seek, don't do that. Don't be overly concerned with righteousness. Because those who seek self-justification or a self-willed righteousness, mortally, is what he's describing, mortally, undervalue God's standard of righteousness. It is a deadly mistake, as in literally deadly mistake to mortally undervalue God's standard of righteousness. The way that one does that is by pursuing self-generated, self-willed righteousness in time for self-preserving purposes. Don't do that. You are mortally undervaluing God's standard of righteousness. James 2.10 describes it this way. You know this text, but let me call it to mind. For whoever keeps the whole law. Okay, so, so there we have it. Very straightforward. As he is dealing with it here in Ecclesiastes, and we'll get to that in just one second. But hear the entire voice of Scripture. James, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. It's a series of dominoes. Galatians 3.10, this is why the preacher says to you, don't go this route. Don't do it. Don't try to prolong your days, or that is, gain merit from God from your righteousness in time. Don't do it. You cannot ascend heaven's hills of righteousness. You can't get there by self-effort. You can't get there by self-will. I've seen it. A guy who is righteous has died by his own righteousness. You're right. Don't try to do it. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works. That is, how could I not have prolonged days? How could I not have God's merits? I am relying on my works of the law. Paul says, well, then you're under a curse. Again, we might not say, I I am trying to perform the law by looking up up Deuteronomy and saying, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments and then I'm going to do them. We might not say it in that overt of a statement. But we're saying it nonetheless in smaller statements. God hears my prayers now. God is my friend again. God loves me now. By ascending heaven's hills through self-generated, self-willed righteousness for self-preserving purposes. Paul says you remain under a curse. For it is written, cursed. Not, not kind of, sort of, difficult days. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And then furthermore, to put on there, you think, I'm probably abiding by them. And do them. Oh. It's a different level of obedience. To not just ascribe to them by confession, but to actually perform them. If I don't, you mean... The law, that is, every commandment, every word of God's perfect will for me, recorded in Holy Scripture, that of every command, every imperative, cannot simply be an ideal or an aspiration of which I hope to attain. No, they must be perfect executions. Well, maybe once or twice, I've done that. I've had real good days. No. This is the second component of God's standard. 
We must hear this, beloved, that you, you see, the standard of righteousness is perfection. Please, please, I know that in Christian sermons, this can kind of be like, this is what we hear. We have to, you know, I was cleaning out my ears for your sake. And we, we must hear it afresh because we so easily go right back under the law. We must hear it afresh. The standard of righteousness is perfection and it's life, how long? It's perpetual. Obedience unto God, whereby we merit his favor, cannot be, was never intended to be momentary. But the obedience to the law must be perfect in its execution and perpetual in its duration. This is what he's asking. Is that what you're ascribing to these individuals? So you say, I've seen it. I'm embittered against God. I've seen it. I've seen a righteous man who has died by means of his righteousness. You're saying you've seen an individual in time. Perfectly obey every command. Do so by faith and love. And do so for the duration of his life. Before you lodge this complaint. I would suggest to you, don't be that man. Relying upon his works and performance in order to prolong his days. Furthermore, he then describes, notice how he proceeds to address our wrongful perception of righteousness, how we view ourselves so easily as these righteous individuals or these ones who are worthy of God's merits. He, he addresses it so, uh, so clearly in the text. Notice how he addresses why do, again, maybe the complaint being why do bad things happen to good people. Notice how he begins to develop this issue of the standard of righteousness. Verse 29, if you would, of chapter 7 I'm going to jump right down to verse 29 and deal with his argument here. After he gets through this situation in 21, he describes kind of your day-to-day existence. He just gives you kind of a for instance. Um, you know, you, you, you don't, don't get caught up and bored down by people's opinion, whether you're the good guy, the righteous guy, or you're a real jerk. Either, either which way, verse 22, you've done your wrong, and you've made your wrong as well. Again, in the human experience... You have your own faults. Back to the idea of righteousness. Thereby, clearly lays out, you cannot ascend heaven's hills by your own merits. Furthermore, he drops down through this experience with this woman that he is saying is utterly bitter. That is, uh, kind of uh, giving yourself to a woman. And he's saying its end is absolute bitterness. And we can take the outside. Um, again, if we were to interpret this uh, generously within the Christian context, that would be that woman whose snares out of Proverbs is that woman who is not of your youth. That is another woman perhaps describing um, what we would say is an illicit affair and the fetters and the burdens that it brings. You'll wish that you were just dead by the time the uh, situation hits the fan. Verse 29 then is describing it. See, this alone I have found. After he describes life lived in comparison with the complaint we've lodged, he says that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. This is how he's describing our complaint of how we said we've seen a righteous individual and he's died by his righteousness. This is his response to you of what, he, what he's describing. God, th- let me explain to you how I see men and women. God made man upright. Let's deal with that first and foremost because he makes four kind of additional um, implications we can gather from his statement here to help us describe who we would speak of as righteousness or what we would call righteousness as he describes here uh, 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 humanity before we go around labeling other people righteous labeling them good he's dealing with how all humanity actually is therefore sweeping out from under us our complaint lodged against God verse 29 again see I have found that God made man upright there's an aspect here of what he's describing it reaches back, if you could, look at this one verse as it reaches back where God made man and he made them upright. So this text, is, this statement here, what he's making, kind of goes all the way back here to where God made man, that is Adam and Eve, and it stretches by the time we finish the verse, we're all the way covering all of history as he views it from his own front porch. Two things need to be observed. First and foremost, what we mean that God made man upright. I'm going to call to your mind 
the creation of Adam and Eve. And that's what he's looking at because he's describing God's making of mankind. And he's going back to that original um, creation event. God made Adam and Eve upright means that he made them. And we need to grasp this so that we understand his, his standard of righteousness versus our approximate experience of how we would judge righteousness. Consider that the historical Adam and Eve were made upright, meaning they were endowed with all knowledge necessary, all provisionary righteousness that was necessary for their life in the garden, and they were given over to true holiness after the image of God himself. This is who the, when God made man upright, this is what he's describing. Again, this is not an approximate. Adam and Eve were not decent folk. We're looking at Adam and Eve, not as like some decent people, some good folk. Hey, they, 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 they were probably all right. We're dealing with the actual historical Adam and Eve described in Genesis that deals with them being full of knowledge, righteousness that was provisionary to their life in the garden, and true holiness. How do we know such? Because they are made after the image of God. This is his description of made upright. And he confesses, I believe, God, I know this for fact. This one thing I have found, I will admit, this is what I know. God originally made, or God has made, man upright. And that is what he is describing. The second implication from this is what he describes then. What did this upright couple do? Or this upright man, that is upright individual, what does he do? However, he seeks out many schemes. This again reaches back and it looks at the present. If I could describe what you very well know but call to mind in contrast to God's righteousness. Remember, Adam and Eve threw off God's authority. Having become sinful before the Lord for casting off His authority. You know the narrative well. He said, you do this, don't do that. They did this. Instead of that, there you go. A casting off of God's authority, which brought upon them death and sin. It's judgment. And again, on how much of Adam and Eve's person, on how much of them was sin placed? How much sin did they bear? In how many of their faculties? All faculties bore the regretful sin condition. All parts of soul and body. Because they, of their own volition, sought after many schemes. That is, Adam and Eve were not simply coerced into doing something that they otherwise chose not to do. Somebody drug them over there. That was not what happened. God made man upright and they, of their own liberty before him, sought many schemes and in the historical setting cast off his authority for one particular scheme the authority of themselves two more implications from this verse we must grasp under the law and that is the they in the text if you look there god made man upright they so dealing with the historical they that were made upright dealing with the kind of panorama from his front porch, the they who continues. Or, or, or might, we might say right here, the we of the text. So, so he's saying, they, that is, they who were made upright, sought many schemes. And the they, as I look out of my front porch at the same individuals, that is their offspring, they, the they, the we, continue seeking after many schemes. Before we'd run off and we say, I've seen it. I demand an answer. I've seen a righteous man die in his righteousness. What's the point? The preacher says, this alone I have found. They, having been formed after his image, have sought many schemes. And their children, by natural generation, continue to seek many schemes. 
describing the they in time, that is the panorama from his own front porch as the wisdom king sits back. He says, I see the sinful estate of mankind continuing. And if the sinful estate continues, so does its judgment. Mankind is an unrighteous lot. The they is the we. Continue. And again, we might think, wait, wait, I never think in these major, massive, terminal ends. Okay, fine. You think of these categories daily. Daily, we make infractions against God's law. Have you ever, for instance, sought something other than your neighbor's good? Okay, great. We're all on the same page. It's we, the children, the offspring of Adam. It's the we seek many schemes. The fourth final piece of the text is that of which we are inclined to do. We seek what? Schemes. I mean, you could go down the list again, as I say, momentary, daily. It can be emotional, like mental. It could be overt and outside manifest. But as you see in Christ's ministry, he deals with it in the heart. It's not what comes out that's defiling. It's what was already in that produced the defiling statement. It is internal. It's deep within the heart. It's with the soul, the body. It isn't part of Adam that fell. It is his faculties, all of them. Thus, when he looks out at mankind before we say, I've seen injustice, I've seen a righteous man die by means of his righteousness, he wasted his life. The preacher says, remember, we, the children Every one of us are indisposed, disabled, and made opposite toward all good. Not only do we want the exclusion of good, we are inclined toward evil. That's what we're inclined toward. That's what our our proclivities are, wrongdoing. We're the offspring of Adam, natural generation. Therefore, the preacher concludes verse 20. If you jump from 29 back up to verse 20, he finishes with this blanket statement. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth, who does good and never sins. Then he gives you that, as I described already in 21, a for instance, don't take to heart all the things people say about you. Okay, just move on. Who cares? You know in your own heart that you can't hold them to a righteous standard of which you yourself have not met. There's culpability involved for everyone because you're the offspring of Adam seeking about by many schemes. Therefore, we would conclude this way about God's standard of righteousness of which the preacher puts forward. If we remember that it is not an approximate, but it is an absolute, let me suggest to you that the law is issued, therefore, unto each of us this morning. The law comes unto us in command. It threatens you, you do realize, it burdens you, and it promises unto you no good will. So why are you seeking to perform righteousness by it? Why? It offers you no good will. It's set up at a standard that isn't on a bell curve. It's absolute, perfect and perpetual, always. Why are you seeking to ascend to it then? It offers, it holds you no promise. Who you are is a schemer, jettisoning righteousness, then somehow standing back in self-righteousness, a faux righteousness, self-generated for self-preserving purposes, and you're declaring God makes sense of his justice to you. This is the complexity of the text. I get the impulses to look at goodness on the surface. I get the impulses to look at righteousness on the purpose and then declare, this is injustice. But he's saying, but what righteous standard are we dealing with? Because if if we look at righteousness as is declared of the Lord, don't seek to ascend heaven's hills. There is no one person righteous in all of his deeds. With this final concluding statement on humanity as he describes our complaint of justice, with this final statement of there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins or performs righteousness without sin. Paul makes the same statement in Romans 3. There is no one, no not one, as in universal negatives, not a single individual alive who knows or loves or seeks after God. 
So, with this conclusion, he pushes you forward as the law does. Do you recall when the law comes to us and commands, threats, offering no provision, bringing burden with it, as Paul says, I learned that I was covetous. How did he learn that he was a coveter or he who covets? By reading in the law, thou shalt not covet. The law does what? It reveals our plight, drives us unto God's power, which is the proclamation of the gospel. The law condemns, and the gospel provides. This is exactly what happens in our text if we look carefully. Look at verse 18 of how his comment about law, full righteousness, self-seeking desires, actually condemn us in verse 20, but they drive us by condemnation to the freedom in the gospel. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this. His, his previous advice, not what I've said to you here at this point, but his previous advice, don't be overly righteous, you're going to destroy your life. Don't be overly wicked, because that's obvious, you're going to die before your time. So, so don't, be in the middle. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of what I just said to you. And from that, that advice that I just offered you, withhold not your hand. So now he's, he's, he, he's negated both, right? He's washed away overly, right, overly righteous, and he's washed away being overly wicked. And here you stand in neutrality. What then is your choice? The gospel. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Self-willed righteousness for self-generating and self-preserving purposes or casting off all lawful concern or obedience of any kind and living as a fool and dying. There is a righteousness that is offered beyond a self-generated and self-willed righteousness, and that is, as he describes here, the fear of the Lord. He who fears God comes out from both of these self-willed, self-effort, self-abandonment unto wickedness or self-righteousness by self-willed preservation. There is another option, and he who fears God comes out from them. That is, the one who fears God is the one who lays hold of the gospel. Paul describes it this way in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God. Do you see the description? The righteousness, not of yourself, not of self-generated, self-willed, self-effort for self-preservation purposes. Don't do that, he says. Don't do that. But the one who fears God will come out of that because now the righteousness, not of you, but of God, apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is offered. You see, that's the twist of the text. Look at the text in verse, eight, uh, verse 20. Once again, you would say and agree, but yet you'd also make this Christian distinction. Verse 20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And you'd say, aha, there's the pivotal point of the text. There has been a righteous man who has lived on the earth and who has done good and never sinned. First Peter 3.18, let me describe him for you. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Here's the description of verse 20. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, the gospel issues forth a salvation-bringing proclamation. There has been a righteous man. He is both God and man. It issues forth upon ascension and resurrection a salvation-bringing proclamation that without threat, it does not impose any command, it proclaims God's goodness, the year of his favor, his mercy, and his benefits. The law promises you none of that. Self-willed, self-generated, self-preserving righteousness, I'm better than him, her, or the other, offers you no goodwill. 
why would you destroy yourself? You see, the gospel takes our complaint and gives clarity. Bad things have happened to a good person once. Furthermore, they happened because of you. And yet, they happened for you. Thus declaring to you salvation in the name of Christ alone. Coming to you without threat. Not imposing upon you a command. Proclaiming God's goodness in the year of his favor. Declaring his mercy and his benefits. This is the final result of he who fears God and comes out of both lawful legalism that he thinks he will ascend heaven's hells and achieve his own standard of righteousness and merit prolonged days from God. Don't do it. And the one who says, fine, that I'm going to live my life apart from faith. This is for jokers. I'm out of here. The one who fears God by coming to the gospel of Christ gets out of both of these conundrums. And he gives you this promise. Romans 4. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Do you see there's absence of threat? No one's here to call forth your duty. No one's here to drive you on by bullwhip. No one's asking you to compete with your neighbor. The text is calling forth a trusts that rests upon and receives all of Christ. His obedience, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension, his return to make all things new. to the one who does not work, puts that impulse away, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We agree with the divine text that there is no one righteous. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, we'll admit that even in this hour. That there is no one in the congregation, there is no one universal, negative, no one individual righteous before you. We might ascribe common deed, common grace, common goodness appropriate to others, but never a merit-gaining righteousness before you. Law, we agree, proves we seek many schemes. We praise you for your gospel, for your righteousness, for the deeds of Christ.